This is the Kratom Science Journal Club with Dr. Jonathan Cachet, neuroscientist and expert in psychopharmacology. In each episode, we discuss an article in a peer-reviewed journal. I'm your host, Brian Gallagher, blog and social media writer for KratomScience.com, your source for all things Kratom. For episode two, we discuss the article, The Potential for Kratom as an Antidepressant and Antipsychotic, published in Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine, edition 93, 2020, pages 283 to 289. Okay, so it's uh, the article we're talking about today is The Potential for Kratom as an Antidepressant and Antipsychotic from the Yale Journal of Biology and Medicine that came out this year recently. We were talking a little bit before about kind of, well, the whole premise, I guess, of the abstract is that Kratom is usually um, recognized to act on the mu mu opioid receptors as kind of the same way that opioids act. But it also can work as an antipsychotic and work on dopamine, serotonin, and alpha-2 adrenergic receptors. And so I guess my question was, just in general, how does dopamine or serotonin or uh, adrenergic receptors work? Okay, so yeah. So um, dopamine, of course, is commonly known as like the pleasure neurotransmitter, um, broadly you know, understood that in, in the public. Uh, in neuroscience, we're refining that understanding and, and understanding dopamine more as a, uh, a motivational salience uh, indicator now. So evaluating uh, the potential reward or the potential um, downsides of any particular behavior and then motivating that behavior through like muscle movement and action. Um, so there are several uh, interesting dopamine pathways that are related to uh, to this activity. Uh, there's the mesolimbic, which goes from uh, down in your brainstem up to your nucleus accumbens. And increased activity in the nucleus accumbens is associated with pleasurable feelings. So like um, eating, sex, uh, and use of drugs that specifically release dopamine in the nucleus accumbens is a evolutionarily conserved, you know, uh, Pleasurable, pleasurable feeling. Uh, so a way to determine if a behavior is going to be pleasurable is to have that, uh, that system activated. When there's too much dopamine inside of this mesolimbic pathway, it can lead to the positive symptoms of psychosis. So that would be hallucinations, delusions, uh, disorganized thought. Um, and one of the reasons why this dopamine hypothesis psychosis came to be was that drugs like uh, cocaine or amphetamines that, or that in particular increase dopamine activity here can lead to psychosis-like states. So people hearing, seeing, or believing things that are not necessarily real. So there's that one pathway, dopamine, that's related to uh, pleasurable states. There's another pathway called the mesocortical pathway and the negrostriatal pathway. Um, this goes again from the down in the brainstem up to the higher cortical areas. And for example, uh, if there's problems in the negrostriatal pathway, this leads to Parkinson's. Basically, uh, the cluster of neurons in the brainstem lose their ability to make dopamine. And so if you've decided on 
performing a certain behavior. The next step would be to initiate, you know, literal body movement towards doing that. Um, and when you lose the dopamine in these areas, it, it can prevent organized uh, rollout of planned movements. And so when there is a decrease of activity of dopamine in these mesocortical and nigrostriatal pathways, that's where we get the negative symptoms of, of psychosis. So that would be very similar to a depression, more or less. So decreased motivation, anhedonia, which is the uh, reduced ability to feel pleasure or to derive pleasure. So it's the balance of these things. Psychosis is sort of this um, abnormal mental state or mind uh, disease where there is either too much dopamine leading to hallucinations, uh, hallucinations, delusions, disorganized thoughts, or these negative symptoms was decreased motivation and anhedonia. And one is caused by too much dopamine activity in the, in the one pathway. And the other one is caused by not enough dopamine in the other two pathways. Would it, an antipsychotic would then regulate the amount of dopamine? So, yeah. So the history of, of, of antipsychotics. So the, the, what they call typical antipsychotics um, are treating the overactivity of dopamine. So you use a drug that blocks the dopamine 2 receptor. This reduces the intensity of psychotic symptoms. So it's like, okay, this person is feeling uh, delusional. They're seeing things that aren't there. They're sort of up in their head in, in this manic-like state um, that can be induced with drugs or maybe it's a natural imbalance or trauma. If we reduce the amount of dopamine or the dopamine activity, then we can bring those, uh, the intensity of those psychotic hallucination type symptoms down. Um, and, and in converse to that, they realized that if we increase the dopamine uh, activity in these things, then we can trigger psychosis, like I was saying earlier. Uh, the bummer is with these typical, these older psychotics, is that um, there are many side effects. So if you're decreasing the uh, intensity or the activity of dopamine in one pathway, you're also doing it in the other pathways. So that it led to crazy side effects related to movement disorders. So inability to move, disorganized moving, tardive dyskinesia, stereotypic movement behavior. And so gradually, I mean, there's still some use in some use cases that for, you know, depending on what the particular person's physiology is, where these typical psychotics will work at bringing down those positive symptoms. Um, but we realized it was sort of overly simplified. And so that's when the role of serotonin came into place to say we could treat drugs that treat the positive symptoms without the movement effects if they're involved in, in serotonin signaling. And so reducing the activity of serotonin with the 5-HT2A receptors increases dopamine but indirectly and so there are less side effects related to that it says um at the adverse effects of typical and atypical antipsychotics have not been observed with the use of kratom or its isolated alkaloid mitragenine and animals are human so why do you think kratom does not cause the same side effects of other antipsychotics the, so that's a great question, and this is where I think the real the real interesting part of this study comes out, right? So back in the day, they developed drugs that they were trying to make for, like, anesthesia, and they realized that it decreased those psychotic symptoms. So they're like, oh, dopamine must be involved in psychosis. Let's make drugs that specifically, you know, and directly, it's almost like a sniper taking a shot, like hit this one area very hard and see if that helps. 
And of course, it did help in the worst cases, but in the majority of cases, it led to these these extra side effects. So then they're like, maybe it's just not dopamine involved in psychosis. Maybe there's some involvement of serotonin. And generally, what kratom and metragenine offers is uh, a binding profile that's a little less specific, like it would be with a sniper shot, to say this has activity broadly across dopamine and serotonin receptors. There's, you know, push and pull interactions at play here that we don't fully understand, but we know that drugs that also display these properties, like metragenine, um, are more effective, they're the atypical antipsychotics, than the older psychotics. So there must be more here going on, and there must be more nuances in the exact sort of levers that they're pulling within the brain um, that leads to the, the reduction of both positive and negative symptoms. And so while the answer to your, your question specifically is we don't know, but there is enough promise to say this, investigating the alkaloids in this kratom plant can lead to the development of, uh, of more uh, well-tuned and specific uh, antipsychotics or antidepressive behaviors or anxiety medications um, because of its broader spectrum activity um, and it's less sort of targeted and pushing the gas or hitting the brake completely in one way. Also, I'm, I'm looking at the introduction here, and, and it says these compounds, which the compounds in, in Kratom, operate without recruiting beta arrestin 2, which is associated with a range of commonly reported undesirable effects such as respiratory depression, constipation, and dependence. Um, and I guess this is compared maybe to uh, maybe opiates. But um, right. So what's the significance of of that, and we, I think we, you talked about it a little bit in the last podcast, but recruiting right. so, beta rest. So you got to think of these um, synaptic receptors as like, think about a tube on a lake. So it's just floating on the surface and there's, um, you know, there's a little donut uh, inflatable raft that's sitting there. Um, these dopamine, serotonin, the opiate receptors, all of them are this little raft and they get activated when something comes and goes and connects to that middle hole, right? But after that happens, there's this crazy phenomenon where they're recruiting other cell surface receptors. So imagine you're looking at a pond, you have that tube on it, someone sits in the tube and then they reach over and they grab a cooler full of beer and they pull that over to their tube, right? That cooler is essentially the beta arrestin in this scenario. And by pulling over that beta arrestin, it leads to a change in the intracellular signaling. And so particularly beta arrestin, as we mentioned in the last journal club, uh, this is related to a receptor being activated for abnormally long times or in the presence of too many, uh, too much, uh, it's called a ligand or the, the molecule that binds to the receptor. When the, when the neurons start registering the activity of this beta arrestin, they will slowly start pulling the entire receptor back into the cell. So the whole tube goes underwater. And that leads to tolerance because you have less receptors for the molecule. Um, then you need to take more in order to get the same desired effect. And what's interesting about Kratom is it doesn't lead to the uh, envelopment or the uh, ingestion of the receptors and a decrease of receptor activity at the cell surface. So we don't get those uh, enhancement of the other side effects, the biggest one being tolerance, which is, you know, sort of the, the bane of, of painkiller management uh, uh, treatment. Uh, 
Um, but then also things like respiratory depression and changes in cell uh, signaling or changes in cellular transcription. Um, so I guess, you know, the, the take home on beta arrestin is it gets recruited after a receptor is activated and it can lead to significant changes that affect the benefits of the drug. Um, but in this case, with, with the metragenine and the other alkalizing kratom, we're not seeing those additional uh, side profiles or side effects develop, which is just another sort of um, uh, fact pointing to the idea that these compounds deserve more, you know, uh, psychopharmacology research. And another thing in that introduction, it talks about the adrenergic alpha-2 receptor. And does that, is that receptor have anything to do with adrenaline? Yes, yes. So activation of the adrenergic receptors can, is like an increase in sympathetic nervous system activity. So like um, that initial rush you get when you're in a new scenario or, or you think that you're about to be in danger, of course, the classic example is you're in a prairie and you see a lion, you see a predator, but it applies to humans in many different uh, scenarios. Let's say you see the girl you like at, at the end of the hallway or the guy you like, whatever whatever it is there, or you see your boss and your boss asks you to do something, you didn't do it. You immediately have this rush, like you have an increase in, in heart rate. Uh, you start breathing a little bit faster. The activation of the, the sympathetic nervous system is essentially at the very initial causes of what people call the fight or flight response. You either have to move quickly out of the way or prepare to engage physically uh, in some sort of threatening situation. Um, what's interesting about the alpha-2 adrenergic receptor, which is specifically mentioned in, this, in the review article that we're, we're talking about now, is that when that receptor is activated, it actually inhibits the release of the adrenaline or the uh, norepinephrine. It's called a negative feedback loop. So essentially, the initial flood of the adrenaline happens. Uh, you're, you start breathing, your eyes get dilated, you're, you're ready to move quicker, you feel that anxious thing. But then another wave hits the adrenergic 2 receptor and can slow the effects or the feeling of those effects on the adrenaline. Um, and so, you know, I think when I think about it, it sort of is also related to sort of a withdrawal feeling, so the feeling of anxiousness uh, that someone will be going through after they've been on opiates for a long time, okay. where if if that adrenergic 2 receptor is activated, it can reduce the release of adrenaline, reduce those feelings of anxiety that are at the beginning of a fight or flight response, um, and therefore lead to, um, you know, helping people get over those withdrawal symptoms. And that made me think of, they talked about um, Kratom reducing ethanol withdrawal symptoms, Is and, and it says... Um, it talks about locomotor hyperactivity. Is that kind of an anxiety response to withdrawal? Right, yeah. And I mean, so you would think with alcohol or with opiates or with um, anti-anxiety medication like benzodiazepines, you are constantly sort of suppressing your body's um, natural balance into a sort of depressed, um, more relaxed state. And so when you remove those, those drugs that are, are keeping your body depressed, your body, of course, is rebounding in an enormous way. And that's where you get this anxiety, sort of hypolocomotor sort of twitching or just pacing back and forth, sort of stereotypic behavior of a, a withdrawal-like symptom. And so, yeah, um, the, the bounce back of that 
and having to sort of deal with the, the heightened uh, awareness or central nervous system stimulation is generally what people who are using central nervous system depressants are avoiding withdrawal. There was another part about this about um, that I thought was interesting about they uh, conducted uh, swim tests in mice. It was, well, I mean, the whole thing's a review of other studies. So they were talking about a mm -hmm. study that did. Are you familiar with these swim tests? And um, it says mitragenine, like other antipsychotics, reduced immobility time in these tests. Um, what Do you know what immobility time indicates? Yes. So, um, you know, when I was in graduate school, we were doing neurobehavioral research. Of course, all of ours were swim tests because we were giving drugs to zebrafish. Um, but the oh, yeah. force swim test is a very um, broadly used uh, neurobehavioral assay or experiment uh, in use with rodents. And it can be used in a number of different ways. It can be used for memory, um, but it can also be uh, used as indicators of depression uh, and learned helplessness. So what you do is you get uh, maybe uh, a pool that's about five feet in diameter. It's not huge, um, but it's not small either. Um, you put the mouse in there, and they have to swim around until they find a platform that's submerged maybe uh, a half inch below the surface of the water. So you can't see, just like if you were swimming in this pool, you can't see where the platform is. But if you're swimming around, you can find it, and then you, don't, then you can stop swimming, right? You, you're up on the platform, and you don't have to worry about drowning anymore. Okay. Now, in rodents where depressive behavior is um, more prevalent, they will enter a state of learned helplessness, where essentially they're like, oh, well, I guess this is my life now. I guess I'll just have to sit here and tread water. And so they're immobile. They're not looking for the hidden platform. And the amount of time they spend in that immobile phase is indicative of their, the extent of their depressive-like state. So what, what would, like, mitragenine do? It talks about produce similar responses in immobility time. Mitragenine may be effective as an antidepressant. So both the 10 milligram per kilogram and the 30 milligram per kilogram doses of mitragenine significantly reduced immobility time when compared to the control. So the controls were, and I think that they mentioned it was either the study or another one, but one of the things you can do is effectively give uh, the rodents alcohol or opiates. We used to do this with both the, fi the fish uh, and the mice. So you give them uh, ethanol for five weeks. Every day they're getting a dose of ethanol. When they stop getting that dose of ethanol, they can enter into like the press-like state, essentially an induced withdrawal. So the control mice were given the alcohol um, for an extended period of time, then that treatment was stopped and they were put it in. And they spent a lot of time immobile. They had a depressive-like phenotype. The more time they spent immobile, the more depressed uh, phenotype is interpreted that way. So when they gave them a tragenine, it reduced that immob immobility time. So it suggested that they were, the learned helplessness was less extensive or less intense, or the depressive-like state was less intense. So it, it recovered, is what some the researchers will say, it recovered the mouse from the extent of the depression. And it also said there that clinical research indicates a positive correlation between cortisol levels as a representation of stress and the risks of developing major depressive disorders. How do cortisol levels influence depressive disorders? Yes. Yeah, so um, 
this is, and we, and we did this again in graduate school too. We would um, watch the fish behavior, or in this case, we're talking about watching mouse behavior in the four swim test. And we're gonna correlate that behavior to also physiological measures of stress. And you know, when you're using animal models, you can, you gotta worry about anthropomorphizing or like attributing human-like affective states or human-like motivations to these animals that are quote unquote, you know, yeah. less complex cognitively. So <clears throat> it would be, it's kind of risky to just look at the behavior and say, oh, this is why they're doing that behavior because you may be anthropomorphizing too much. You're okay. attributing too much intent or motivation or internal cognitive states to these animals. So what the, the researchers will do and what we did when we were validating the zebrafish model is we'll look at their behavior and say, okay, is this behavior indicative of a depressive-like state? So do they have increased immobility in the fourth swim test? And does that increased immobility in the behavioral realm also correlate to physiological changes that are seen across organisms indicative of a heightened stress state. So cortisol, um, and actually in mice, it's called corticosterone. Um, in zebrafish, it's actually cortisol. And in humans, it's actually cortisol. But this is a primary uh, hormone or inter, you know, interbody signaling system that when there's higher levels of cortisol, it corresponds to higher levels of stress. It's essentially maintaining your physiology in a state where you can be in that fight or flight um, mode for longer um, and excess levels of cortisol and excess levels of cortisol activity are very clearly linked across the, the spectrum of animals uh, to heightened states of stress. Like if something bad happens, like a death of a loved one or a global pandemic, or do the levels affect how a person deals with that? with those events or do those events cause those levels to um, get to the depressive, whatever level is the depressive state. So it's, I guess it's kind of like a nature versus nurture question. Yeah. A great question. There's some really cool studies on this. The, the answer is uh, elevated and prolonged levels of high cortisol activity can lead to learned helplessness can lead to depression. Uh, but one of the landmark studies, um, one of the things, one of the maternal behaviors, so when a, a mama mouse has baby mice, one of the things that that mom does is lick her young. So uh, it's like, it's a grooming behavior, but you know, the mother sort of cares for the young uh, uh, pups that were just born. And you know, the, the analogies go all the way up to humans, of course, the mother physically touching, cleaning and grooming the human, the human behavior. So in these pups, if researchers separated the mother from the, the pups and the, those pups were not able to receive the licking from the mother, they just had a higher number of cortisol receptors across the board expressed in their nervous system than the pups that did have the mother licking them. So the like calming state of the mother licking the pups leads to a reduction in the number of cortisol receptors there. What this meant for later on in behavior is higher levels of cortisol receptors because the pups weren't getting licked from their mother, then they were um, more likely fa and faster to show uh, an inability to deal with stressful situations. So they are very anxious mice because they were um, not given that maternal care licking from their mother. So 
you know, it can come from genetics. It can also come from environmental factors right after you're born. And then that sort of sets a baseline that stays there for the rest of the animal's life. And so, you know, um, children growing up without parents or growing up with only one parent, you can see all oh, that they might have had a 25% increase in cortisol receptors, which makes them so much more sensitive to cortisol signaling. It literally means they can feel anxious or start to feel anxious before what would be quote unquote normal, right? There is no normal. Everything is on a spectrum, but if they're more sensitive to feeling, uh, the effects of a potential anxious situation, then they're more likely to disengage from that, to remain immobile, to avoid those things, um, you know, setting you up for a a disorder later on in life. Another part of the study, they were talking about um, DMT, LSD, psilocybin, and also mitragynine and fluxetine all interact with serotonin receptors, while LSD has an affinity to D2 receptors, which is dopamine. It says, uh, you know, it, it, it even compared at one point, I didn't, um, I didn't pull the quote out, but it said Kratom is like a mini <laughs> psychedelic experience, which doesn't appear to be alike at all, but some psychedelics result in antidepressive effects. Uh, is that how they're similar to Kratom? Is that what they were trying to say? You You know, that jumped out as me as well. I had never heard anyone discuss metragenine or, or the alkaloids in Kratom as being potentially psychedelic or hallucinogenic. And, you know, this has been, uh, ever since I started in undergrad in psychopharmacology, you know, there are some, some psychopharmacologists will classify cannabis as psychedelic or hallucinogenic. You know, to me, it doesn't, I, I think that that's not, it's, it, it sets up the wrong sort of preconceptions in people's head. Mm-hmm. What is interesting is, you know, when we were studying the zebrafish in, in similar ways to these neurobehavioral tests, um, giving them a central nervous system depressant, let's say it was opiates or alcohol, for an extended amount of time and then stopping that uh, exposure to those central nervous system depressants, it induced withdrawal. It was very clear cut. When we gave them stimulants um, and then uh, gave them too many stimulants, we very clearly could then pull that out and get depressive-like behavior. So, if you, you know, the withdrawal from a depressant is stimulation. The withdrawal from stimulants is depression. When it comes to the psychedelics um, and like fluoxetine, which is Prozac, so we're talking about metragenine, fluoxetine, DMT, psilocybin. Then let me pull metragenine out of there they all heavily interact with serotonin receptors and the number of serotonin receptors in humans in the cortical neurons of humans, you know, there's up to like maybe 15 subreceptor sub subtypes and each of those can have different alleles within them. So I'm just trying to paint a picture that once, once we got to the psychedelics and once you start getting into studying the behavioral effects of psychedelics, it becomes a very complex, like sort of seven way teeter totter where if you're hitting serotonin receptor subtype 1A, uh, it'll increase serotonin activity, but you're also hitting 2A, and that's decreasing serotonin activity. Then you get over to dopamine 2. Dopamine 2 will decrease uh, dopamine release, but if you hit dopamine 1, it'll increase dopamine release. And so what I guess what I'm trying to say is, or pain at least, is that this is a very, the relationship between affective states and behaviors when it comes to serotonin and dopamine is very complex. 
And luckily, we have compounds like the psychedelics to help us tease apart these relationships. But due to the prohibition over the last 30 years or so, uh, neuroscientists, psychopharmacologists haven't been able to use these compounds and probe, the, probe their effects in a systematic way to, to even really say, this is what makes LSD LSD. Like we know its receptor profile and where it binds, but you know, when you're looking at 20 different things to say this binding to this particular receptor subtype is what makes LSD LSD or psilocybin psilocybin um, is we're just not really there yet. Luckily, when we have something like Kratom or we have all this wide variety of psychedelics, if they're given to researchers, they can use these as tools, sort of like a mechanic tinkers with different parts of a car. You can study how the effects, you know, you could say, let's give it LSD and let's block LSD's effects on serotonin receptor 2A. So we just see the effects on serotonin receptor 1A and see if that leads to any behavioral like swings in, in a far way. So, you know, it's to say that Kratom is a psychedelic or a hallucinogenic, I think is not true based on the experience that I've had uh, taking it and many others have had where you're not getting uh, wild compressions uh, in your relationship to time or yourself or, you know, uh, a dissolution of your ego from, you know, this is where I start and where the external world starts, where that sort of gets washed away. We're not seeing those in Kratom. And I don't think that it's ever been reported when people take a lot of Kratom that they're getting this sort of psychedelic dissolution of ego. Um, but to just say, okay, well, metragenine binds to both dopamine and serotonin receptors. That's sort of like some psychedelic compounds we know of. That can be true. It doesn't mean that the effects, the mental or physiological effects of Kratom are similar to mushrooms or acid. Yeah, definitely not. <laughs> uh, metragenine has a short half-life of approximately three hours after injection of the compound, but presents with a long terminal half-life of approximately 29 hours following oral administration, suggesting a biphasic distribution model. So what, I guess, first of all, what's a biphasic distribution model? Okay, yeah, so the, the biphasic distribution model, the half-life, and the cytochrome uh, P enzymes are like basically three different topics that we could unpack in and of itself. One of the reasons why when I was in grad school and we were doing all this neurobehavioral research that we were so interested in Kratom, and one of the things that makes Kratom different is this notion that at lower doses, it's sort of a dopaminergically driven stimulant. So sort of like along the lines of, of caffeine and coffee, or maybe like a small, like, you know, less than two milligram dose of uh, adetamine. Um, but then at higher doses, it becomes a central nervous system depressant. So low doses stimulant, high doses depressant. That's unique in and of itself, just a single compound that leads to those different um, effects. Yeah. Now, that's what jumps out to me initially as biphasic distribution model. But in the paragraph you just read, it's a notion that it, it is taken and the metragenine, so that particular molecule, starts working immediately and only lasts for about 21 hours, so seven three-hour half-lives. Um, but then it's when it is um, uh, ingested by those de degradation enzymes, it leads to other psychoactive molecules. And that can, those can be active much later in the process. So like as your body's 
um, breaking down these compounds. The compound, compound A, metragenine, has it, but then the subproducts of those metragenine, after they're broken down by your enzymes, also have bioactivity. That's what they're talking about with the biphasic distribution model. There's sort of two phases to the uh, alkaloids and what those alkaloids are actually doing. It says mitragenine has uh, three hours after injection, short half, and then it says 29 hours. Does that mean it takes a full t- over a day to metabolize, even though I only feel the effects for maybe four hours? Right, yeah. So okay. half-life refers to the amount of time for half of the, half of the concentration of a compound to be uh, degraded in your, in your body. So if it's three-hour half-life, that means after three hours, let's say you take 10 milligrams of metragenine. After three hours, you now have five milligrams of metragenine. After another three hours, you have 2.5 milligrams of metragenine and a half, half, half. Generally, uh, when we're talking about pharmacokinetics, you go seven half-lives until the drug's completely eliminated from your system. And so the metragenine has a half-life of three hours times seven would be 21 hours until that's completely out of your system. These secondary compounds have an approximately 29-hour half-life following in more uh, oral administration. So 29 times seven, that's how long it takes for those compounds to be completely eliminated uh, from your body. And generally, we only see half-lives in terms of the, you know, the most popular um, psychoactive therapeutic compounds. Generally, half hours of this length are only seen in the benzodiazepine. Yeah, and you know, I didn't realize too about this low bio or uh, low oral bioavailability. I mean, three percent. So that's saying if you take a hundred milligrams of metragenine orally, only three percent of that is going to survive through first pass metabolism. So we're talking about three milligrams. Um, I didn't realize that the degradation uh, of the metragenine was so extensive in the gut. Um, you know, this is a big problem for opiates and in, in painkiller management as well. Um, and one of the reasons why people look to alternative routes of administration uh, than putting it into your gut, because of course your gut is just a you know a churner to break things down uh, into compounds your body can use. Um, you know, one of the things that always sort of made me smirk, maybe it's a little bit immature, but um, I don't know if you've ever talked, uh, if you know that tackling compounds rectally leads to like a 99.8% bioavailability because you're <laughs> skipping your stomach and going right into your intestines and it just gets absorbed. Um, so wow. it can be real dangerous for people who, you know, let's, they're like, Oh, I got an opiate tolerance. I uh, don't want to lose the milligrams that I have by putting them in my stomach. I'm going to go in this other way. But then all of a sudden they get way more opiates than what their body's used to. And it can lead to overdoses. I mean, it's, yeah. it's sad, um, but it's, you know, it's, it just goes to show you the different, like the very different effects you can get based on the method of administration. You know, they say the poison's in the method of administration, not necessarily the dose. And hell, what a way to die. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. So it, it also says uh, under this, um, under this section, a uh, 2019 study determined my tragedy to be an inhibitor of PGP, which could lead to significant drug-drug interactions between kratom and other substance. And, What's PGP, and does it have to do with uh, what happens in the liver? 
so yeah, it just says express. It's a transporter express in uh, endoplasmic reticulum with very broad specificity. Um, this looks so particularly PGP seems to be an ion transporter that will. Uh, it says the protein has the ability to pump out xenobiotics out of the cell to re reduce absorption in substances in a systemic circulation um, or from crossing the blood-brain barrier. So it's essentially an ion transporter that would be similar to our donut analogy that we talked about earlier that is pumping out um, non-self or xenobiotics, so uh, molecules that, didn't, that are not natural for myself that I ingested out of the cell um, in order to prevent their long-lasting effects on the cell. Um, that's a little bit different than the CYP enzymes, but broadly, uh, the, all of, both of these molecules are involved in breaking down substances um, and, and sort of eliminating them from your body. You know, many reasons why you would want that to happen. I'm a little bit, I, I want to push back on this notion that um, there, you know, of course, there could be there. There could be um, harmful drug-to-drug -drug interactions because it binds or prevents it binds up these enzymes and prevents the degradation of the compounds. All drugs you take are eventually degraded through enzymatic degradation and eliminated from the body. If you inhibit those enzymes, the degradation takes longer, and thus the drug has more activity in mm -hmm. your system. And so, if you're taking two drugs at the same time. And you need to make sure that, you know, it, it gets eliminated properly. It can lead to potentially dangerous side effects. The reason why I'm pushing back is to say these aren't the only degradation enzymes that you have in your body. It's an entire family of enzymes that's coupled with other families of enzymes that if there were truly a severe loss of degradation after taking Kratom or Metrogenine, we would already know about it. There's enough humans that have taken it that are continuing to take it, whether they take it with, um, you know, uh, cholesterol meds or they're taking it with, uh, like, let's say, uh, uh, antidepressants or an anti-anxiety meds, that if there was a fatal interaction, in my mind, it would have been reported already. It doesn't mean it's not possible. It's definitely something worth um, looking into more. But I would say... It needs to be looked into not as, hey, this could theoretically lead to uh, dangerous drug-to-drug -drug interactions, um, because that's always the case. It, sure, it always could, but unless we're seeing clinical presentations of this happening, um, it's not like uh, research into therapeutic development and understanding Kratom and its alkaloids more should be immediately stopped and the brakes put on it, because there's a a 3% chance that this could happen down the road. You know what I mean? It's just, yeah. I worry sometimes because regulators will pick up this notion of, oh, it could cause drug-to-drug -drug interactions. We better put the brakes on it full stop right now. That's not the case. If there were drug-to-drug -drug interactions that were killing people instantly, we probably already know about them. And if that were the case, we would want to hit the brakes as hard as we can and say people will continue to harm themselves if they're using this. That's not the case. We're not seeing that. Um, and we should explore it further. I'm not trying to prevent us, the scientists, from learning more about it. I'm just preventing, I'm trying to prevent the uh, theory of this being a possibility being picked up by non-scientists and used as a, in a pro prohibitory sort of way. And, I mean, I've heard people say that, oh, since I've been taking Kratom, I can't, 
drink two glasses of wine anymore without getting drunk, but that's probably because they'd been sober for a while and maybe their tolerance to wine right. had gone down. And even uh, Darshan Singh, when I interviewed him, he said his that study we were talking about last week, it, it was opioid polydrug users also using Kratom. And I even asked him directly, is that a problem? Do they, you know, does it increase the effects? And he said, I hadn't seen that. So when, when they were using right. pure Kratom anyway, so... Yeah. Right, right. You know, and, and again, there are, especially when it comes to Kratom, there are a number of things we do not know. You know, so sort of why I, I picked this paper. One of the things we do know is aside from the um, receptor activity at the opiate receptors, and it's not just mu, mu, delta, and kappa, um, there's also activity at the serotonergic receptors and the dopaminergic receptors. And that's about the extent of it. There, we need more research to be done. And I, you know, I just, I like the, the more tools or the more molecules we add to the pharmacologist's toolbox, the better. Um, but of course, you know, I'm getting towards a disclaimer that basically says there is much that we don't know already. And of course, don't, um, don't jump into these things. Don't just run out and, and say, oh, they said it was safe on the podcast. I can consume as much as I can. That's yeah. not what we're saying. We're just saying there's much to be learned and much to be known and to, you know, sort of, um, get, you know, the excitement going and other uh, scientists and non-scientists with Kratom to say there's possibilities here and we should explore them more. And that's why, you know, I wanted to bring this paper up to say, what, what are the actual uh, psychopharmacological mechanisms behind these things? What does it suggest and what can we pursue more? Yeah, and I was looking and I had a question about toxicity too. It was talking about um, they found an oral LD50 of 4,900 milligrams to kilogram uh, in mice. Could we extrapolate that to humans? Like, would a 90... I did the math, actually. (laughs) Would a 90-kilogram... A 90-kilogram human, which is almost 200 pounds, require uh, 0.441, like like two-fifths of a kilo administered in one sitting to kill them? Well, and I think, too, that the milligrams is referring to metragenine, right? So you would need the 0.44 kilo, and then if you're talking about plant material, it would be like 6% of the plant material on average is metragenine. So we're talking multiple kilos of plant material that would have to be consumed in one setting. It's just, you know, it's sort of like with cannabis. It's just not possible to consume that much of the compound without, you know, without having a bigger stomach, basically. So um, it's interesting, you know, when I was so, when you're giving uh, psychoactive drugs to animals for the first time, like I was in grad school giving LSD uh, and morphine and all of these to adult zebrafish, you have to establish sort of a, a toxicity level. You have to understand at what, what's the ceiling of the dose that we can give um, before it starts leading to uh, fatal or, or lethal overdoses, right? And so we would do this with all the drugs. Um, and uh, when we first started, it was just sort of scooping and putting it in, scooping and putting it in, scooping and putting it in. Uh, of the opiates, of the benzos, of the alcohol, I mean, it had to be really high doses. But, of course, there was a, you know, we knew that if we gave them enough alcohol or if we put them in 100% pure alcohol, they were going to die, right? Mm-hmm. But when I was doing this for caffeine, um, it wasn't in my mind that like caffeine can be something that people fatally overdose on. 
Um, so I was sitting there giving the fish additional caffeine, additional caffeine, additional caffeine. And then all of a sudden, the fish just sort of stopped swimming. I saw its like lower body expand and then go back in. And then the fish turned upside down. Like Once we hit that lethal dose, it was like, oh, shit. This thing just like had a heart attack. Its heart exploded and it died. And it was, you know, only when I was at, you know, three or four, um, I forget exactly what the milligrams was, but it just caught me off guard big time because I wasn't expecting the fish to die so violently. Like maybe I was, if we were giving it uh, central nervous system depressants. And so it caught me off guard. I'll never forget that. And I always tell people, the craziest drug I'd ever given the zebrafish of all, you know, Ibogaine, PCP, Kratom, uh, has been caffeine. And when I looked into it more, um, the difference between the effective range of a, a caffeine dose and a fatal dosage of a caffeine uh, exposure is very short. So once you hit the, the overdose threshold on caffeine, your body system shut, shut down almost immediately and it leads to death. Um, so it's the therapeutic window or the difference between an effective therapeutic dose and the dangers of a high dose for lethality is very small in caffeine. It's, it's small, probably the smallest of all. Um, whereas like with cannabinoids like THC or CBD or even the psychedelic like psilocybin and LSD, that therapeutic window is enormous. Um, and there is very, very little chance that humans could ingest enough quickly enough to reach those lethal doses. Yet, you know, here we are, those psychedelics and cannabis are schedule one drugs, according to the DEA. Yeah, it's almost like I can make a stronger argument if I wanted caffeine to be illegal based on that. <laughs> certainly, certainly, or nicotine or alcohol. I mean, that's something that yeah. I'm sure our audience is fully, you know, well aware of and people are becoming more hip to, but, um, you know, it just becomes, there's a, there's a new... Um, uh, the business of drug of drugs or something is a new documentary on Netflix, and they make it you know very clear that Nixon was convinced that cannabis and psychedelics were leading to the counterculture protests, and he needed to make those illegal because of that, not because they posed um, any fatal risk to to people who use them. Luckily, you know people are waking up to that, and and we are. Um, getting those back in the hands of scientists. And it, of course, again, this is not a um, broad uh, endorsement of running out and using these compounds uh, willy nilly, um, but it is simply to plant the seeds to say, um, you have been lied to about uh, the true uh, psychopharmacological nature of these compounds um, for political and social purposes. And at the very least, we need to continue these trends of getting these compounds back in the hands of scientists who will be able to better understand the human condition, particularly as it relates to mental states like psychoses and depression, um, and then either develop novel drugs uh, based on those and the ones that we're seeing in Kratom, or um, develop novel uses of the same compounds in a therapeutic setting to really help a lot of people. All right, thanks a lot, Dr. Jonathan Cachet. And I should also say that study we are talking about was co-authored by uh, podcast guest uh, Mark Swagger. So shout out to Dr. Swagger as well. 
Uh, this was written and produced by me, Brian Gallagher, for KratomScience.com. The music is Captain Big Wheel, and the song is Moonrunner. Uh, like and subscribe. Share this with your friends who want to know a lot about Kratom Science and other psychopharmacological science and whatnot. We're going to try to do this again in two weeks. So... Watch out for the next Journal Club coming up two weeks from today. Alright, take care.